Well, we are looking at the book of Revelation, the end times, what's coming, starting today and on through the next little bit. The book of Revelation. You know, the book of Revelation was written by John the Apostle, the disciple, one of the twelve. Uh, at this point, when the book of Revelation is written, John is the last apostle alive. Uh, of the twelve, you know, Judas killed himself, and then they brought in a new disciple, a guy named Matthias. And of those twelve, uh, at various points from that point until this one, when John writes Revelation, all the other eleven have died, uh, been martyred, mostly in horrible ways, um, every single one of them. Uh, just, just as best we can tell in church history, only one of those deaths is recorded in Scripture in the book of Acts. James, John's brother, uh, is beheaded uh, at one point, the first of the apostles to die. Uh, but then the others, um, uh, best we can tell from history, is they're spread out around the world and get uh, persecuted, arrested, tortured, and killed. And at this point, this is after A.D. 90, again, the best we can figure, and John, all of those original disciples are gone, and he's all that's left. He had been a pastor in the city of Ephesus. Um, you know, the book of Ephesians, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Uh, whether John was there when Paul wrote that or not, we're not totally sure, but John had been a pastor in Ephesus for a little while. But at some point with him preaching the gospel, John had been arrested and taken to Rome, he had been taken to the Colosseum in Rome. And they had brought out this big vat of oil, set a fire under it, and got it boiling. And they brought out John, last of the twelve, at this point, in the A.D. 90s. So we believe John was either in his upper 80s or low 90s at this point. They take this disciple, pick him up, and throw him in that giant vat of boiling oil in front of the whole crowd in the Colosseum. After a little bit, they dump it out, and John comes out of that vat of boiling oil completely unharmed. Completely unharmed. In the same way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire not smelling like smoke kind of a situation. And as the story goes in history, the crowd in the Colosseum that had been shouting a few moments before were silent. John declared the gospel there in front of the spilled over vat of oil. And again, as the story goes, hundreds or possibly thousands of people got saved that day. And so Rome thought, well, we can't kill this guy. And so they had these islands. They had three islands that were prison islands that they would take special prisoners in exile to. One of those islands was the Isle of Patmos. And so they take John... <clears throat> John, who Rome now considers unkillable, and they exile him to one of those three islands, the island of Patmos. And it's there on this island, exiled for proclaiming the gospel, that John gets a visitor here in Revelation chapter 1. So take a look in Revelation. Uh, turn your Bibles there to Revelation chapter 1, or if you're going to use one of the Bibles on the pew rack, it's on page 1,028, right at the very end 
Um, and that Bible there on the pew rack, if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible home. Just take one home. Everybody needs one, so take it with you when you leave. Revelation chapter 1, John writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his, his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So this kind of preface that John gives here, this is the revelation of Jesus. So this is a vision that Jesus gives to John. God gave it to Jesus uh, to, to show the service. So God gave it to Jesus. Jesus gave it to an angel. The angel is going to give it to John. But notice there in that verse 2, there are three things that are going to be shared by John. He says the word of God, which is scripture. He's going to share the testimony of Christ, the words of Jesus. And he says at that last little section, everything that he saw, even to all that he saw. So all his personal experience, John is going to do his absolute best using first century language to describe this vision that he gets from God. And that's what the book of Revelation is. He's, he's doing his absolute best to use the words at his disposal to explain what he's seeing in front of him. Uh, but then I do want to point out one word there in verse 1. It says, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. So everything included in the book of Re Revelation, Jesus communicating it uh, to the angel, the angel communicating it to John, is considered to take place soon, near when this is being given to John, some 1900 or so years ago. And so you may ask the question, what is soon? <laughs> I mean, 1,900 years, is, is, is that soon? I mean, that's, that's pretty far. Um, but soon really is relative. You know, God created time, so soon is all the time. But really the idea behind soon is more to instigate a feeling within us of urgency. That any moment could be the moment. Any day could be the day. There were some Christians in years past who would wake up every morning with the phrase on their lips as they looked out their window to the east. They would say, maybe today's the day. And that's the understanding is maybe today's the day. And so we ought to treat today with that level of urgency with everyone we come in contact with, with every decision we make that day. Ought to reflect that idea of soon, that idea of urgency. So John's still writing, look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So everyone who reads the book of Revelation, according to these words here, everyone who reads it aloud uh, is blessed. But the blessing comes not just from reading it, it comes from hearing what we're reading, that means taking it in, uh, and keeping what is written in it, that means doing it. Applying it to our lives. Because simply reading it, and it has no application, no effect, that doesn't do anything. You can read the Bible all day long, but not apply it to your lives. And if you do that, the Bible's not any good to you. God's words are not any good to you. If you're not applying it to your lives, if you're not using it in your lives. The reason God gave it to us was for us to use it. And so John is saying, you will be blessed if you read it, if you hear it, and if you do it. The blessing comes when you actually obey what's in this book. 
Look at verse 4. John says, gives who is writing, he says, John, to the churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. And so we got these churches he's writing to, the seven churches. He's going to give us that list here coming up here in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of these seven churches. Um, They kind of form a rough circle. So if someone were to take the book of Revelation, as they're going to end up doing, and take it on a circuit, they could go from church to church, each one of these churches, and deliver this letter to each of these churches and finish out the circuit. But you're going to notice also as we go through the book of Revelation over these weeks coming up, John uses the number seven a whole lot. Seven is a very significant number, particularly in prophecy and the book of Revelation. It, it comes to mean completeness or wholeness, the number seven. And so when John says the seven churches, he very well could be meaning all of the church. Because everything he's writing to these seven specific churches is still applicable to the church, whole church today. It's still applicable to our church today, as we're going to see. And so keep that in mind as we read the number seven continually, as he even says in that verse, that interesting phrase there, uh, grace to you from, and he's going to list out three people this is from. Um, We'll get two in this verse. Uh, Grace and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. That's God. And then he says, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. Seven spirits sitting before the throne. Now just glance ahead. We're not going to turn there yet. But who else is this from? The very beginning of verse 5. From Jesus Christ. So grace and peace from God, seven spirits, and Jesus. And what do we just learn seven more often than not? What does it mean? Wholeness, completeness. So the spirit coming in between God and Jesus This very well, most likely what I believe, this means the Holy Spirit, the complete Holy Spirit, the whole Holy Spirit. Because it is the number seven, but it also falls right in between him talking about God and Jesus. And so that wouldn't be any other spirit except the spirit of God himself. Look at verse five. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and ruler of of kings on earth, to him who loves us, And has freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Jesus, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead. Jesus was the firstborn of the dead. So he was, I mean, that's that's an odd phrase if you really think, break it down. The firstborn of the dead. He was the first to die and raise eternally. Those people that Jesus raised to life when he was doing ministry on this earth, like Lazarus or uh, the boy from the city of Nain, uh, they had to die again. They had already died, and they were going to live, and they had to die again. Jesus is the first one to die and raise and then not die again. The first one raised eternally. And being the firstborn from the dead... That gives us hope because he paved the way, as we saw last week, that we can live after we die if we believe in Jesus. We can have this same eternal life 
uh, and walk into eternity the same way Jesus did here. He says he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Uh, he has made us kingdom, uh, a kingdom. He has made us priests, meaning we have direct access to God. Look at verses 7 and 8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So he's Alpha and Omega, the, the first letter of the alphabet, Omega, last letter of uh, the Greek alphabet. It says, I'm the beginning and the end. Everything starts and ends with me, is what he's saying. Uh, but look at that. He's, in verse 7, he says, he, he is coming. Jesus is coming. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And so there's great discussion about what this verse is talking about, really about when this verse is talking about. He is coming in the clouds. So when is he coming in the clouds? Is he talking about, you know, what people talk about, like the rapture? Or is he coming, like, at the end of time? So we're going to get into all of that as we dig into Revelation. But notice one thing before we dive in. When he says, uh, people, every eye will see him, and all the tribes will wail on account of him. That is an indication, as we're going to see later on in Revelation, of the judgment coming. So this Jesus coming in this, what he's saying, he was coming, the coming he's referring to here is the end coming, the second coming when Jesus comes at the very end and ushers in the judgment uh, there. Uh, verse 9, John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, that, that phrase is very important for in a minute, that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. So he says, I'm partner with you in the tribulation, in trouble. He's not talking at this point, if you know much about Revelation, about like the great tribulation. He's just talking about the trouble they're going through. And he's a partner with them in the kingdom. And he's a partner with them in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. See, at this point in, in human history, in the Roman Empire, they have a Caesar who hates Christians and doing everything he can to stamp out Christianity. That's why he took John and threw him in a vat of boiling oil. He's trying to do everything he can to stop the spread of Christianity. But we also know throughout history, whenever somebody tries to do that, Christianity spreads faster. And so John is saying, I'm a partner with you in the trouble. I'm a partner uh, with you in all the difficulty we're going through. Um, and I'm on the island of Patmos because I was preaching the word, telling people about Jesus. Verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now that phrase, on the Lord's day, that's the only time in Scripture that phrase is used. And from what we can tell, that's probably the first time that phrase is used, um, at least in uh, uh, Christian literature, talking about the Lord's day, specifically Sunday is what he's meaning, as a celebration because Jesus rose on Sunday. 
So he classifies that day itself as the Lord's day as a result of Jesus' resurrection. But I really want you to focus on that phrase, in the Spirit. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So John was really, he was open and willing to listen and be guided by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, on the day of worship, on Sunday, when the voice is going to come to him then. So he's singularly focused on the Lord with an uncluttered mind, and then God brings him this phenomenal vision. How often would you say throughout the week, or let's month, let's just say this last year, the last you know, 12 months, how often would you say that you were in the Spirit? Completely focused on the Lord with an uncluttered mind. I don't know about you, but I tend to have a very cluttered mind at times. Filled with piles and piles of junk. Stuff that don't have any eternal value. Have you ever tried to sit down for focused prayer time? And let's phrase it this way. Have you ever tried to, to pray with the Lord, to, to speak with the Lord, and just listen without saying anything? How quick before your mind wanders to 15,000 different things? Like instantly, if you've ever tried it before. Instantly, you start thinking about, like if you do it in the morning, start thinking about breakfast, thinking about the kids getting up. Was that, did I just hear somebody rustle back there? I got to get this quick before the kids get up. I got to get breakfast done. I got to get, get this done. Then I got to go get a shower. Then I got to get ready. And then I got to do this and I got to do that. Oh, I totally forgot to take out the trash. Oh, the dog's awake in there. The dog's got to go outside. I don't want to mess in my living room. And then you're 15 minutes in and you haven't even listened to one thing from the Lord because you're already chasing 15 different rabbit trails. Anybody ever there with their prayer life? Transparently, I was this morning. <laughs> and John says, I was in the spirit. I was focused on the Lord with an uncluttered mind. And then he hears behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. If he had not been in the spirit, if he had not been focused on the Lord with an uncluttered mind, he would not have been able to hear the voice. Even though it was a loud voice like a trumpet, if he's totally focused on other things, he's not in the spirit and not able to hear him. He had to get rid of the clutter to hear this voice. So he hears this voice like a trumpet behind him. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Now remember, John's trying to describe what he's seeing using the words that are available to him. He's doing his best to describe what he's seeing. He says, I turn around and I see seven lampstands. And I see somebody who looks like a person standing there. Like some being with the appearance of a person. He's wearing a long robe. He's got a golden sash. He says, this is what I'm seeing when I, when I turn around. Looks like a son of man. Now notice he doesn't say the son of man, which was the title that Jesus used frequently in the Gospels. But this could also be a reference. There is a, a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 talking about something similar to this scene. And a son of man, uh, the language is used. And that's to talk about Jesus specifically. So it still references Jesus here. Um, we get a description of this 
being who looks like a man in uh, verse, starting in verse 14. He says, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. So again, remember, he's using these words. It's like this. It's like that is what he's seeing. He's not saying his eyes were literally on fire. He's saying when I looked at his eyes, it was like a flame of fire. It was the appearance of that. Uh, possibly it's something about it made John think about fire. Uh, we get the white hair, uh, possibly talking about age, talking about wisdom, as Scripture frequently uh, references. Fire eyes, fire-like eyes, indicative of, of passion, spiritedness. Uh, the bronze uh, there, uh, his feet were like burnished bronze. Uh, it could be a reference to the altar in the temple um, upon which the offerings were offered. Um, and he had a strong, powerful voice. Uh, he had already said it's like a trumpet. Here he says it's like the voice, or it's like the roar of many waters. Now, John would have been very familiar with the sound of water. The island of Patmos is only eight miles by four miles. Not very big. And if you're out there in the midst of the sea, you're constantly going to be hearing the water. Have you ever stayed or, or, or uh, been on vacation down by the beach? Or maybe stayed in a beach house? The, the, the ocean is constant. It's like having a house near the freeway. You constantly hear the roar of the freeway. You constantly hear the roar of the waters. And so John's saying it, his voice is so massive. It's like this, this, this roar, this constant roar that's rolling through your chest that he's describing here. And these descriptions, the, the eyes, the hair, the voice, they're all descriptions um, used in prophecies in the Old Testament from the book of Daniel and Ezekiel to talk about Jesus as well. Uh, from Daniel chapter 7 with the white wool hair. From Daniel chapter 10, the eyes that are like fire. Ezekiel chapter 43, the voice like rushing waters. And now in verse 16 of Revelation chapter 1, John continues describing what he's seeing. Now he's seeing all this in an instant. Remember, he hears the voice like a trumpet. He whips around and he sees somebody who looks like a person. And he's describing for us here in several verses what he sees in an instant. He says in verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Now, all these are uh, specific reference. I mean, the, the, the seven stars, he's going to tell us specifically in a moment what these are. Uh, but at this point, what we know about the seven stars is they are protected in his hand. We see that he has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. His words are like a sharp two-edged sword. Does that bring anything to mind in Scripture? There's another Scripture that calls something a sharp two-edged sword. The Word of God is called a sharp two-edged sword. It cuts bone and marrow. And so this, he's saying, this person, this, this two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, his words are very powerful. His words are the Word of God. This is Jesus and his face shines like the sun in full strength. Now, I want you to remember something about who this is. John is seeing 
Now he realizes this is Jesus. John is seeing Jesus for the first time in 60 or 70 years. John is seeing Jesus' face shine like the sun. John has seen Jesus' face shine like the sun before on a Mount of Transfiguration in, I want to say that's Matthew 17, I think. Maybe I can look it up and correct me later. I'm wrong frequently, but uh, I'm not always right. But I, I think it's Matthew 17. And so John looks, and he sees Jesus' face shining like the sun. And that brings to mind what he saw there himself 60 or 70 years ago on that Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus transformed. And so he's seeing Jesus, his Jesus, that he saw die, that he saw raise. He saw rise into heaven. He's seeing him now for the first time in decades and decades and decades. It's not just his friend he hasn't seen in a long time. It's his savior he hasn't seen physically in a long time. Imagine all of those emotions that are roaring through John in this moment. Overwhelmed by seeing Jesus, his friends, Jesus, his savior. Jesus in this, this incredible glory. What would be your response if that were you? Look at John, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This isn't like in, in Scripture, some, sometimes people would fall prostrate, you know, like laying flat in honor of the person they're seeing. It's, it's as though John is having his, his sensations overwhelmed by everything he's seeing. Sensory overload in the moment. Seeing the, this glory, seeing Jesus, he just collapses in front of him. So it's not graceful by any stretch of the imagination. You remember the old black and white movies, you know, when the, the heroine would faint, you know, oh, it's not like that at all. It's just like, and he just falls down flat on the ground like a dead man, like he's just been struck dead. And Jesus reaches out, laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. Remember, God had said that, or John said that about God a minute ago. He is the first and the last. So here Jesus is saying it. He says, I am God. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So John is, is instructed to write everything down, to not miss anything. So this is, if, if you have ever had Jesus give you a specific instruction. Let's say Jesus shows up physically in front of the whole church right now. And he points at you and says, I've got a job for you. Everything I'm going to say in the next 20 minutes, you write it all down word for word, punctuation and everything. You're going to be scrambling for a pen as quick as possible. I'm, I'm pulling out my phone. we got the recorder going. I'm getting the whole shebang. I'm not going to miss any of it. Jesus has given me a word to write down all of it. And so he's given John the specific commission. Everything you see, everything you experience, you make sure you get it all. And so John hears this. And then Jesus is going to give John and us, in reading this, something very important in verse 20. He's going to give him an explanation for some of the things he has just seen. And what we're going to get from this description from Jesus is kind of a, uh, like a, the key to a map. Like, he's giving us 
how we are to interpret the prophecy we're going to see in the book of Revelation. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, most translations will translate that word angels there in that verse. That word in the original language means messenger, specifically. Messenger is what he's using that word there for. That's referencing the leaders of the churches, the pastors of those churches. It says those seven stars, that's who they are, the leaders of the churches. And those lampstands you see sitting around me, those are the churches. And so he gives us this idea then of how we are to interpret the rest of the book of Revelation. You say, man, I don't get it. Stars, lampstands, preachers, churches. Well, as we get into it, we'll do our best <laughs> to explain some of it. Um, but as, as when I've taught Revelation in the past, um, what I tend to say is, I'll try to, as we get into the prophecy um, in a few weeks, uh, is this is what some people think, this is what some people think, this is what I think, uh, but I'll tell you right off the bat, right here, week one, I could be totally wrong on all of it. I tend to think there's, a, there's some stuff in the book of Revelation that all of us are going to say we're going to get to heaven, and we're going to say, oh, <laughs> we were all wrong, <laughs> that's what it meant. Um, but we're going to do our best to understand it because, as John has said already in chapter 1, this is to help us get a sense of urgency for what's to come. For what's to come. So that people can come to know the gospel, can come to know Jesus, can come to have salvation, can have eternity in heaven. And so Jesus says um, to John, write it all down. And so then Jesus, as we're going to look at the first seven verses here of chapter 2, what Jesus is going to do in these next two chapters, is he's going to dictate to John some stuff to write down. Remember, to those seven churches, to us today. And the first church that pops up, no coincidence, is Ephesus, where John had been a pastor. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So Jesus, in giving this word to John to send to uh, the believers, uh, says, gives a description of himself, I hold the stars in my hand, I walk among the churches themselves. He says, I know your works, your toil, how hard you work. I know your patient endurance. Remember, John had said back up in chapter 1, verse 9, that John was a partner in their patient endurance. John had gone through great patience, great endurance as well. And so Jesus is saying that about the Christians in Ephesus. He's telling them, I know that you endure patiently through, through phenomenal persecution, he says, I know that you cannot bear, you cannot tolerate when evil is flowing among you. When people come in your church and they say that they're, they're apostles. Paul writes about this in, in Corinthians. People said they're super apostles. It, okay, Paul's an apostle, but they would say, well, we're super apostles. We're better than him. And they would say, we have a word from God for you. 
And, and Jesus is saying to, to the people in Ephesus, the Christians in Ephesus, I know that you test those guys and you see that they're not true. You, you, you see that the words and the prophecies they're giving are not true, that they're false prophets. Scripture tells us how we test that, is that when a prophet says a word and that word does not happen, they're false. They're not from God at all. And so he's saying, you test them. You, you see that they're not right. And so Jesus is commending these Christians in Ephesus. Verse 3. Or oh, we just read that. Oh, no, verse 3. He says, I know you, that you are enduring patiently. There's that phrase again. And bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. So great commendation. You endure patiently. says it twice. Emphasis. Uh, you're bearing up for my name's sake. You, you, you are persevering through all this difficulty. You have not grown weary. You're not tired of it yet. You're not battle-worn yet. You're, you're doing great. But, verse 4, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love you had at first. That love, I mean, that could be talking about the love, uh, their, their, their first love, Christ. It could be talking about the first love they had for other people. It could be talking the love they're supposed to have for each other. Or it, I mean, it could be talking about how they love. You, you have abandoned the way you used to love. Well, it's most likely that last one. Um, the book of Revelation doesn't use the word love to talk about an individual. Um, you love somebody, but it usually doesn't talk about um, an individual, even Jesus, as your love. He is your love. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. So what John or what Jesus is saying is you have, you have abandoned the way you loved. You have abandoned the way you loved me. You have abandoned the way you loved other people. You have abandoned love itself in your pursuit of good work. So remember, he has commended them for their work and their perseverance. But he's saying you're not doing it with love. You're not doing it with love in how you interact. Have you seen any Christians in today's culture who seem to be testifying to parts of Scripture or posting about things in Scripture, but do it void of love? Do it without thinking about who's on the receiving end of that. Doing it with all kinds of truth and all kinds of harshness, but without any compassion, as though using scripture to slap people around and not bring them to Jesus. See, this isn't just a first century problem. This continues on to today. Jesus is saying, you, you guys persevere and you're doing all this great, but you're not loving at all. He says, you've abandoned it. You left it behind as though you matured beyond it. He's saying, you're missing it altogether. You've abandoned your first love. You've abandoned how you are supposed to treat me and other people. Verse 5, he says, so remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first with love. <laughs> He says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Man, that seems, that's, that's a pretty big deal. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to tear your church down. I'm going to remove its place and it will no longer exist. If you do not bring love back. You can do the works all day long. 
But if you're not showing my love, you're not showing me. That's what he's saying. And so he says, do it, or I will come and remove that lampstand. I will come, and you will no longer be there as a church. That's some, I mean, this is Jesus saying this. So this is a promise from the Son of God saying, get your act together and start loving better. That's what he's saying. But he doesn't end with, with those harsh words. He says, verse 6, yet this you have, this you do have, you hate the work, works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. But notice, he doesn't say you hate the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know who these people are. We have no idea who these people are. All we know is they did sin, and a lot of it, because they're mentioned in some other passages. But he says, Jesus doesn't say that he hates the people. The Ephesians don't hate the people. But they're not a fan of the sin that they're out there doing and leading others to do. Verse 7, Jesus said, So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That is perfection. That is heaven. The tree of life is mentioned back in the Garden of Eden, and it's also mentioned at the end of the book of Revelation. It will be in heaven. This is a, a symbol of a heavenly eternal life. So he says, if you conquer, if you persevere, if you make it through this life, you're going to be able to experience heaven. As he already talked about patient endurance, that's just a, another way to phrase patient endurance. If you patiently endure, if you continue on, then you will have eternal life. You will make it on through and, and have eternal life. Patiently endure to that moment. So in writing to these Ephesians, back up in verses 2 and 3 here in Revelation 2, he says, you're toiling, you're patiently enduring, you're enduring patiently, you're bearing up, you're not growing weary. There in verse 7, you're conquering, you're, you're, you're uh, uh, making it on to the end. John talked in chapter 1 about himself patiently enduring. This is the exact same idea Jesus has mentioned before. Back in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 10, he said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, exact same phrase, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And Jesus gave a parable in Matthew 13, kind of illustrating the opposite. In the parable of the sower, he said there was some seed that the sower threw out that fell among the rocky ground. And in his description of what that is, that is people who endure for a little while, but when the persecution comes, when the difficulty comes, they abandon the life of the Christian. Or, more specifically, they were never saved to begin with. They may have thought the idea of Christianity was cool. The, the lifestyle, okay, it's moral, I need to do that. But then, when it became uncomfortable, when, when it became uh, difficult and you had to change some of your habits, they walked away from it. Because it wasn't as easy as they thought it would be. And so he's saying there in Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower, there are people like that who don't endure. And Jesus is saying there in those other passages, the one who endures to the end will be saved, Matthew 10, Matthew 24. And then here again in Revelation chapter 2, patiently enduring, you will find salvation. He said you will take of the tree of life and be with me in paradise. Now I want to point out something very important because this was a recent discussion um, in 
into queen uh, among some people. Uh, some people say that enduring to the end means you must do everything in your power to live as good as you can, to make Jesus happy, and only then will you get into heaven if you have lived a good life and endured to the end, done the best of your ability. But that's not what Scripture says. You say, well, Jesus did say, endure to the end, you will be saved. Yes, we're going to look at that. But Scripture also tells us that we are saved by grace, through faith. This not of yourself, not of your works, so that no one can boast. So Paul tells us, you cannot do it by yourself. You don't have it within you to be able to gain heaven because of your own work, because of your own endurance. And so, okay, Paul tells us that we can't get to heaven by living a good life, by doing more good than bad, by doing our best. But then Jesus said in Matthew 10, Matthew 24, Revelation chapter 2, you endure to the end, you will be saved. So how does that line up? Well, always, always, always. Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. People can pick and choose different verses and try to interpret that and try to spell it out. But if you just take one little sentence or one little phrase and say, this is what it means, but other scripture contradicts what you say about what that means, then I'm going to take scripture every day, no matter how many degrees the guy has that says this is what it means. Scripture is always the best commentary on scripture. And so, so the secret then to conquering in this life, you know, Revelation 2.7, the secret to patiently enduring in this life if we want to live, um, has to come from somewhere. It has to come from somewhere. And if it can't come from me, I mean, Paul says, I can't do it on my own. It has to come from somewhere else. I have to be able to endure. And that endurance, that strength to endure, has to come from somewhere else. I mean, we know uh, endurance itself, let me give you a definition. Endurance is patience in action. Endurance is patience that is in action. It's actively doing patience by enduring, by undergoing what you're experiencing. And you can sit there and you can think, okay, well, I can't be patiently enduring on my own. Okay, I understand that. I get that. But then how do I get it? Are you going to ask God for patience? Who's ever asked God for patience before? Some of you are smiling. Because if you ask God for patience, and it's been my experience and my observation in other people's lives, you ask God for endurance, he's just not going to miraculously drop it in you. He's going to give you opportunities to use it, opportunities to exercise it. Because patient endurance is a faith muscle. It's a faith muscle that has to be used in order to be strengthened. I mean, just like exercise, working out. If you don't work out a muscle, it's not going to get stronger. If you don't use a muscle, it's not going to get stronger. I can tell you having my wrist hold up in something for almost three weeks now, or almost four weeks now, um, when I take this deal off, especially when I had that other one on, it was a lot more restrictive. Even now, I mean, even just taking this off, my hand is stiff, my forearm is stiff, I can't do much. 
Um, I definitely can't bend my wrist very much. Um, not that I've tried. Uh, I got I go see the doctor tomorrow, and I'll find out. <laughs> He'll tell me how bad I've been. But, um, but because I haven't been using these muscles for almost four weeks, they're a lot weaker than they used to be, a lot stiffer than they used to be. Endurance, patience is strengthened when we use them. And God knows that. That's why when you pray and you ask God for patience and you ask God for endurance, he's going to give you opportunities to, to use them, to expand your patience and endurance so they can grow stronger. And so a lot of people now, you know, they'll laugh and they say, don't ask God for patience because he, he'll give you some chance that you need to try and be patient in. He'll give you another kid. He'll give you an experience. But when you ask God for patience, you have to understand he's going to give you a chance to grow. He's going to give you a chance to be stronger. But you cannot be stronger on your own, and he knows that too. And so what he's going to do is, is help you understand you cannot do it on your own. You try to get stronger on your own, you only invite failure. And so like I said a minute ago, Scripture, the best interpreter of Scripture, how then can we grow in patient endurance as he wants us to, as he commends here in Revelation chapter 2? Well, I'm going to give you some verses. You can jot them down if you want. That's why I left a lot of space. And over these next few weeks in Revelation, we're going to try to leave a lot of space on the back of the bulletin. Uh, you can take notes as you want. But Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul writes, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So be strong in the Lord, not in yourself, because you can't do it. You can't. You say, but God's not supposed to give me more than I can handle. Well, Scripture doesn't say that. He says you won't be tempted beyond what you can handle with him in your life. But I don't know if you've lived very long in this life, you get a lot more than you can handle a lot of the time. And so that's why you need him. Because be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Exodus chapter 15, verse 2. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my strength. Not me. I can't do it. The Lord is my strength. Isaiah 41.10. God said, I will strengthen you. You won't strengthen yourself. He says, I will strengthen you. 1 Chronicles 16.11, seek the Lord and his strength, and God will work out the strength in you. God will build up the strength in you. God will get the work done in you. You would just have to bring yourself to be willing. You have to make yourself available for him to do the work in you. And he promises that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day. Of Jesus Christ. He who began the good work, he who started the salvation work in you, will make you stronger, will bring it to completion, will bring it to fulfillment, will bring it to wholeness. He will do the work. He will make you stronger if you make yourself available. If, if you take up the tools he's already given you, you take up the tools he has given you 
And he will make you stronger. The tools of scripture, the tools of prayer, the tools of faithful giving, the tools of small group, the tools of church. God gave us all these tools to make us stronger in our faith. And he will wield them in our lives to make us better, to make us stronger, to build our faith. Because he knows we need him to make it through. That we can't function without him. We can't get it done without him. We can't parent without him. We can't be a good neighbor without him. We can't be a good husband without him. We can't be a good wife without him. We can't be a good grandparent without him. We can't be a good friend without him. We can't be a good church member without him. We can't be a good citizen without him. We can try to do our best and try to go it, but man, we're going to fall and stumble and fail without him. We need him constantly, all the time. I mean, I'll tell you as a preacher, if anything good ever comes out of my mouth, that's all Jesus. If anything ridiculous and dumb and doesn't make sense, that's all me, 100%. I've worked hard at that. That's all me. And we can mess up all the time. But we've got to take up the tools he's given us and use them. If we don't use them, we're just not going to be able to do it. I remember one day I was working on my mower and I couldn't get the blades off. I needed to put new blades on. I'd taken the deck off, which is a pain in the rear end. Amen. <laughs> you were telling me about your mower, Paul. It, uh, man. Uh, and I didn't have the right tool. I didn't have a big enough wrench to put on that nut to get the blades off. And I was trying... I had that thing jerry-rigged with, some with, with uh, a couple of different sets of pliers and, you know, and, and a mallet, and, I was and it wasn't coming. This was, several, this was several years ago when Gene Davis wasn't in heaven yet, and he drove by my house, and he saw me out there whacking at my mower, and I'm sure he laughed. And he pulled up in my driveway, and he walked over to my shed where I was whacking at this thing, sweating like a pig. And he asked him, we talked for a minute. He said, I'll be right back. And he went over to his house, and he brought back about seven wrenches. He said, try them. And it finally got the right size and it popped on. He goes, keep that one because I got three more back in my shed just like that one. Um, and I didn't have the tool to do the job until my neighbor gave me the tool and showed me how to use it. God has put people and things in your life that are the right tools for the right job. You can have the tool but not use it. And if you're not using it, it's not doing you any good. So Jesus comes and he says there in Philippians 1.6, he's going to do the good work in you and bring it to completion. So we've got to have the tools at the ready. So when he comes to make us stronger, we're ready to do what he's got us to do. And so you ask yourself now here, wherever you're sitting in this green pew where you're watching online, will you let God work in you today? Will you let him work in you? today? Will you let him work? Will you let him do the work? Will you let him have control in your life and release control from some of the things you've been clinging to because you feel like your hands are the best hands? And he's coming along and saying, you got to trust me. And you got to let that thing go. I will make you stronger. I will grow your faith. I will empower you to be who I designed you to be. But you got to let me work in you. You got to let me work. Will you let God work in you today? 
Maybe God needs to work in you for the first time today. Maybe you need to believe in Jesus today. Jesus, God's son, who died so all your sins would be forgiven. All of them. Even the ones nobody knows about that are way back here, in the back of your mind. You're afraid if somebody found them out. He forgave, he died to forgive those too. Will you believe in him that he died so all your sins would be forgiven? And then he rose from the dead so you can live after death. Will you believe in him today? Let him work in you today. Or Christian, will you let him work in you today and stop fighting him? Work. Let him work in you. Find that patient endurance to make it through this life, growing stronger at every moment, at every juncture. Will you let him work in you today?